I heard the story of a Sunday school teacher who decided to do a little impromptu Sunday school or a Christmas pageant, tell the story of Jesus' birth with her kids and uh, the kids in her class. And so she got them some props and she read the story so that they'd kind of be reminded of it. And she just kind of let them go and let them kind of dictate what they were going to do. And so one little girl grabbed a pillow and stuffed it under her shirt and grabbed a baby doll. And she said, I'll be Mary. And another little boy said, I'll be Joseph. And another little boy said, well, I'll be the innkeeper. And uh, another couple of boys said, they, they grabbed some uh, bathrobes and they said, well, we'll be shepherds. And everybody was something, whether it was a, a sheep or a angel or a wise man, everybody was something except for one little girl. And she didn't really have a part. And so she kind of got creative and she said, well, I'll be the doctor that, that you know, helps to give birth or helps when, when baby Jesus is born. And so they went through all the motions and you know, the, the telling the story. And time came where Mary is going with Joseph to the inn. And of course, the innkeeper tells him there's no room. And so he turns them away. And then finally, the birth is going to happen. And you know, Mary with the pillow and the doctor pulls out the baby. And Joseph has to act like he knows what he's doing. And so he asks the doctor, little girl, he says, well, doc, what is it? And she says and smiles real big, well, it's a God. So that's what we celebrate this, this time of year. And certainly not just this time of year. We celebrate year round the fact that uh, it was a God, that that little baby was God in the flesh, that God himself, the creator of the universe, came in the form of a man that he lived and ultimately that he died for you and for me. And certainly around this time of year, the focus for a lot of people is on the birth of Jesus. And we read about that in places like Matthew and in Luke. But we are looking specifically at a passage and the picture that the Apostle Paul paints in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And we're kind of walking through that passage and, and really focusing on what does that look like. And I think what we find is this picture of how the infinite almighty, the, the creator of the universe, the God of the universe became less. He became a human and he took on the form of a man for you and for me. He became less so that we could have more, not just this Christmas, but year round. And so Philippians chapter two is where we are starting in verse five. Here's what Paul writes. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Last week, we focused on the idea of Jesus emptying himself. And this week, I wanna focus in on what Paul says about Jesus, that he took on the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself. And the real meaning of, of Christmas and this time of year and Jesus becoming a man and coming into this world as he did isn't just that he became a man, it's also that he became a servant. In fact, that word servant is really too soft. The word that Paul uses in the Greek is the word doulos, and it's really the word that we get for slave, that Jesus became a slave. And in many ways, the story of Jesus coming into this world is the story of the ultimate master, descending to the point 
of becoming the ultimate slave. And he became a slave in a couple of different ways. For one, he became as a slave to humanity. He became as a slave to to humanity. And when I think about that idea, perhaps no other story outside of the cross underscores this idea more than the one we find in John chapter 13. John writes this, starting in verse 1. It was just before Passover feast, and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. In Jesus' day and age, foot washing was not uncommon. We, we don't really do that anymore. We, we have socks and shoes on our feet, and we just take our shoes off when we go into somebody's house. But in, in, in Jesus' day and age, foot washing was quite a common uh, occurrence. You, you had to have someone to wash your feet because one of the things about the, the mode of transportation that was most used back then was, was your feet. And so you walked pretty much everywhere. And because all the roads were dirty and dusty, your feet kind of got pretty gnarly, right? You think your husband's feet or your son's feet are pretty nasty. That's nothing compared to what it would have looked like in first century Middle Eastern culture. Your feet got pretty gnarly and pretty nasty. And so it became necessary for you to be able to have your feet washed when you came into someone's home, especially because of how they ate. When you, when you think about you and I eating today, we eat around a table, we have our feet underneath the table, no one can see them or hopefully smell them unless the scent is quite strong. But in, in those days, they would recline around a table instead of sitting at a table. And so your feet, instead of being under the table, were kind of right by someone else's head. And so it became a necessity to wash feet, not just for you, but for the other person to wash their feet. But as you can imagine, the job of washing someone's feet because they were so nasty and dirty was not the most desirable of tasks. That's why it was often reserved for the lowest slave in the household. In fact, Jewish slaves, those of Jewish descent, were not even asked to wash feet of those who entered. It was only for the lowest of the low, those who were Gentiles, those who were of of non-Jewish heritage. Those were the ones, the lowest rung on the ladder, who were required to wash feet. Now, sometimes in that culture, you might have a wife who would wash the feet of her husband. You might have a child who would wash the feet of a parent. You might have a, a, a pupil or a student who would wash the feet of their, their master or their teacher as kind of a sign of, 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 to express devotion and love and that they're submitting to that person. But here's what's crazy. When you read this story, and I know many of us are familiar with this, but in ancient literature, this sticks out like a sore thumb. Because you won't find ancient literature that speaks to the fact of a, of a superior stooping to wash the feet of a subordinate. You're just not going to find it. 
This passage here in, in John chapter 13 is really the only piece of ancient literature that we find of a, a, a superior stooping down to humble himself, to wash the feet of those who are his subordinates. It's just unheard of. That's part of the reason why it's so stunning to Peter and the other disciples. That's why Peter says, Lord, are you, are, are you gonna wash my feet? Because lords don't wash feet. They don't stoop to that level, but therein is part of the reason why Jesus did what he did, because he wanted them to understand something about him, that the ultimate master, the creator of the universe, was willing to become the ultimate servant. By the way, did you catch what Jesus does if you go back and read that, that passage again, that he, he got up from the meal, he took off his outer garments, he takes the towel, he wraps it around himself, just like a servant would. He takes on the very nature of a servant, not just in his humility, but in the actual doing of what he did. And I can't help but wonder if Peter, or excuse me, Paul has that image in his mind as he writes those words that he took on the very nature of a servant in Philippians chapter two. And you think about what's going through Peter and the other apostles' minds. It's just, it's just so out of bounds for them to picture their Lord and, and their master, their teacher. It's, it's just so upside down and, and, and countercultural to what they would have pictured that he would stoop to do that to them because Jesus was diving lower than any of them could ever imagine. And yet he's not done yet because there's something else he became a slave to. Not only did he become a slave to humanity, but he also came a slave to sin, to our sin. Now that may sound a little weird when we say that Jesus became a slave to sin because Jesus never sinned, but at the cross, he became sin for us. I think of a passage like in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul says this in Galatians chapter four, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. And then he says a chapter earlier in 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie, The Last Emperor. It came out, I think it was 1997, maybe, maybe even a decade before that. But anyways, it tells the story of this young child who is anointed as the last emperor of China. But he's just a little boy, but he's in charge. You know, he's the last emperor of China. And so there's this scene in the story where he's got just hundreds of attendants at his disposal. He tells them to go and they go. Just this little child tells them what to do. And, and, and so there's this scene in the movie where his brother asks him, he says, well, what if you do wrong? Like, like what happens? You're, you're the last emperor. You're kind of head over everybody. What happens if you do wrong? And he says to him, well, if I do wrong, the servants get punished. And then he says, watch. And he takes this just priceless vase and he just drops it. And promptly, the servant, a servant is beaten because he's, he's, the, he's the last emperor. He can do what he wants to. And I think about that story and how opposite it is for what Jesus did. In that story, 
when the, the king, the emperor does wrong, the servants get punished. And yet Jesus comes on the scene and he flips it around. And instead of the king punishing the servants, when the servants do wrong, it is the king who took the punishment. He took on the nature of a slave, a slave to humanity, a slave to sin in the sense that he became sin. He took on our sin for us at the cross. One of the reasons that you and I bow to him, not only this time of year, but all year round, is because he first bowed to us. And there would be no Christmas and there would be no chance for you to have a new year and a new start and a new beginning if it were not for Jesus coming to this earth and humbling himself and becoming as a slave. You know, around this time of year, everybody talks about getting in the Christmas spirit. Everybody's probably got a different definition of that, what the Christmas spirit means. Maybe it's, I don't know, for some it's getting a great deal on, you know, presents. For others, it's maybe, you know, family or whatever it may be. We talk about this idea of getting in the Christmas spirit, but the true Christmas spirit is the spirit that Paul talks about in Philippians chapter two, the spirit that Jesus had, a spirit of humility. And for us as Christians, it's not just a spirit that we have this time of year, but it ought to be a spirit that permeates every aspect and every season of our lives. And getting in that spirit can have real practical implications for your life and for mine. You see, when we follow in the example of Jesus, when we follow the example of becoming less and humbling ourselves, a couple of things happen. For one, and one of the things that we talk about around this time of year is, is love. Love is expressed. When we, when we follow in the footsteps of Jesus in this picture of becoming less, of becoming a servant, love is expressed. Right before Jesus begins to wash his disciples' feet, and, and I chose this version. It's actually the older NIV version because in the new NIV version, it, it doesn't say this, and I like how the old NIV version puts it. And, and, and here's what it says. Before Jesus is, is washing his disciples' feet, he says, having loved his own, John writes, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And the showing would continue all the way to the cross. It was through Jesus humbling himself that he was in a, in a position to express the full extent of his love. And I think you know, this is practical stuff. To me, this is super practical stuff because here's the reality, whether it's in a marriage or in a family or in a, a business relationship or community life or church life or whatever relationship that you and I have, it is pretty much impossible for you and I to show true love without first humbling ourselves. Now we can like each other and we can get along pretty well without humbling ourselves, but you can't truly love someone the way that the Bible paints the picture of love without humbling yourself. In describing what love is, Paul says this among other things in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, love is not proud and love is not self-seeking. What's the difference between authentic love and real love. I guess I would just simply say this. Fake love is when I use somebody else for my own happiness and well-being. However innocent or extreme that may be, and we've seen all different lines of the spectrum in that, but authentic love is when I give of my own self for someone else's happiness and well-being. That it's not about me. It's about you. 
And one of the biggest challenges in our lives is trying to, to, to differentiate and discern between what is real love and what is fake love in our relationships and even in our own lives. Because what happens is a lot of times that, that people, we, we get into relationships and relationships begin to break down when, when someone thinks that what they had was authentic love and what they find out it was just fake love. Because truthfully, they were just using someone for their own happiness or for their own gain. And sometimes we don't always see that right away until what the rubber meets the road and, and things get a little bit rough, right? That's why they say, you know, about marriage that dating brings out the best in a person and marriage brings out the rest in a person. And when the rest comes out, what do we do? And, and when we get there and, and, and we start to realize, hey, it's not just about my own happiness, it's about someone else's happiness, but if we never get there, then the relationship begins to break down. And the moment the happiness breaks down and that person can no longer fulfill my idea of happiness, fulfill me, then the relationship falls apart. Part of growing in the nature of God is learning how to love each other, whether it's in a marriage or in a church or in a family or wherever it may be, learning to love each other in a way that promotes, promotes one another's interests above my own that I care more about your happiness and well-being than I do my own. And it could be that one of the reasons why we see a lack of love in, in any relationship, whether it be in a family or in a marriage or in a friendship, is a lack of humility. A lack of being able to say, it's not about me and my rights and my needs, but it's about you and promoting your happiness and your well-being. You think about this. What is it about a man when he gets down on one knee to propose to his hopefully wife-to-be, hopefully she says yes? What is it about a man getting down on one knee to ask a woman to marry him? You think about that posture that's being communicated. There's a posture of, I'm, 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 I'm saying to you that I'm willing to, to put my needs, even in humbling myself, before you to communicate how much I love you. Now, hopefully, what makes a marriage thrive is not just that he'll stay on his knees literally, but figuratively, right? And say, I'm going to lead with that kind of sacrifice, with that kind of devotion, with that kind of humbling of myself. And healthy marriages and healthy families and healthy churches and healthy friendships are a product of a whole lot of people being willing to say, I'm gonna bow before you because it's not about me. It's about submitting to each other and loving each other, humbling ourselves before each other because ultimately there's no expression of love without humbling ourselves. But there's something else I think that happens when we go the way of Jesus and we humble ourselves. Not only is love expressed, but peace is experienced. Another thing we talk about a lot this time of year. In this series, we've been focusing in on uh, Paul's words in verses 5 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2. But listen to what he says just two verses, and the two verses that precede those, those verses in 5 through 11. He says this, starting in verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then he says in verse 5, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. 
That, that phrase, look not only to your own interests, that, that word, I'm intrigued by that word for um, a couple of different reasons, but um, one in particular, that, that word look is where we get the word, the word in the Greek is the word skopos. It's where we get the word scope, like on a rifle. That's why, part of the reason why it intrigues me. But, um, but it's this picture of you're, you're aiming at a target, right? So you're looking through a scope. You're aiming at a target. You are, you are looking. You're focusing in on that target. When you're looking through a scope, by the way, it's really hard to look back at yourself. You're focusing in on a target that is not yourself. And so Paul's saying, look, you ought to have the scope. You ought to have your aim, your target it shouldn't be on your own interests, but on the interests of others. You ought to consider others better than yourselves, not in a way that's degrading to you, but you think of others before you think of yourself. And part of experiencing peace in our relationships is an is a, is a idea and a, and a mindset where everybody has their scope on each other's interests instead of our own. And you think about when relationships break down, it's because everybody has their scope on themselves instead of on each other. Because far too often we, we get it backwards. We, we live life the opposite way where we've got our, own, our scope on our own interests and, our, and we're completely self-absorbed with how this affects me. How does it work out for me? You know, I don't want you to tell me to do anything. I don't want you to, you know, to ask anything of me because it's all about me, which is why it shouldn't be too surprising that we so, see so little peace in our relationships, in our lives, and in our world, because there's a lack of humility. But when Jesus shows up, he shows up with the scope, not on his own interests, but on yours and mine. Around this time of year, we hear phrases like peace on earth and goodwill towards men, but peace would have never been possible had Jesus not come and humbled himself the way he did. Ephesians chapter two, verses 13 and 14. But now in Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus for he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus shows us the way to peace. It's the way of going less and humbling ourselves. You know, a lot of times, Listen to somebody talk about this, and they—I I love how how he put it. He said, "You know, a lot of times our, our problem in relationships, or at least our, our thought process is our problem, is that we think we've got a communication problem." How many of you have said, like, we've got a communication problem. We don't communicate. We don't talk like we need to. You know, we need to communicate better. And, and that's true to a certain extent. You think about your relationships. Usually when there's a relational breakdown, there's a communication breakdown. But one of the things he said, and I thought he made a great point, he said, the problem is not oftentimes, the heart of the problem is not communication. The problem a lot of times is elevation that we are elevating our wants, our needs, our desires, our way over the needs and wants and desires of others. Our problem oftentimes in our relationships, and just look at the problems where you have and, and struggles and tension in your relationships, most of the time the problem is not communication. The problem is that you are elevating yourself, that I'm elevating myself over the needs of others. Instead of saying, you know what, it's not about me. It's about you. Of course, that can be hard, right? It can be hard to do that. And so let me give you a couple of things as we close out our time this morning to think about when it comes to humbling ourselves and becoming less. 
The first one is this. We have to humble ourselves to receive what Jesus humbled himself to bring. You and I have to humble ourselves to receive what he humbled himself to bring. That's, that's where we begin. You go back to that scene of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Peter has a hard time letting Jesus wash his feet. Peter says, what, I, I can't let you do this. You're gonna wash my feet? And Jesus says to him, he says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. You see, you, 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 you can't have a part with me. You can't have an inheritance with me, which is part of what that word part means. You, you can't have a part with me unless I wash you. What Peter didn't understand is that in Jesus washing his feet, he was really preparing him to wash the rest of him, his soul. Because if his soul couldn't be washed, then Peter could have no part with him. And that's why Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And it's not simply Peter. It's not simply about him having his feet washed. It's about Peter understanding who it is that's doing the washing. It's about Peter understanding that it's Jesus who has to do the washing. It's gotta be Jesus. You, you and I can't clean ourselves. You and I can't wash ourselves. It has to be Jesus who does the washing. After all, if we could save ourselves, then what's the point of him coming? If you and I could do it on our own, then what's the point of celebrating the fact that he came into this world and celebrating and remembering the fact that he gave his life for us? What's the point in him leaving what he left? If you and I could save ourselves, but unless he washes us, we have no part with him. But our washing, our cleansing, our saving required not just Jesus's humility, but it requires our own. It's not just about Jesus humbling himself to bring you salvation. It's about you and I humbling ourselves to receive it. And it took him dying on a cross to bring it. It takes us dying to ourselves to receive it. And that can be tough to do, right? I mean, we can talk in generalities, but when we talk about specifically my sin, putting Jesus on the cross and him dying for me and me needing saving, that can be humiliating. But that's why humility has to be involved. My question is, can you go there? You know, we can talk about it, but the question is, can you go there? Because some of us, that's hard to admit that I need saving. For others of you, it may be that you're worth saving. But here's the reality. If you can't go there, as a Christian, you better learn to. Because that's the whole way you and I are called to live our lives, to humble ourselves to receive what he humbled himself to bring so that in the end, God might be glorified. And then secondly, when it comes to humbling ourselves, realizing how high you've been lifted up has everything to do with how low you're willing to go. There's one other motive that Jesus had for washing his disciples' feet. You look again at, at John 13, verse three says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. In other words, Jesus got up from the table and bowed down to wash his disciples' feet, not just because he loved them, but because he knew who he was. 
He knew he had come from God. He knew he was returning to God. He knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He had a firm grasp on who he was. And because of that, his service overflowed out of his relationship to the Father. And I think this is so practical for you and I, because the reason a lot of people, maybe some of us here, and and we've all gone through periods, whether you are this kind of person and you're you know, completely in your life, or if you've gone through periods, the, the reason a lot of us don't humble ourselves in service to others is because we think sometimes we're afraid of what it might say about us. I, I don't want to look like I'm, I'm weak. I don't want to look like I'm, I'm less than. And we don't want to do certain things that, that may be beneath us. Or for others, we spend so much of our energy and so much of our resources trying to make something of ourselves, trying to prove ourselves, that we don't have any time and energy left over to make nothing of ourselves. Either way, it comes from a place where we're deriving our sense of identity from what we do or from what we don't do or from what we amass or from what we achieve or from what people think of us. Jesus' identity came not from what he did or from what he didn't do or from what he had or from what other people thought of him. His identity came from his relationship to the Father. He knew he was from God. He knew he was returning to God. He knew that the Father had put all things under his authority. And because of that, he was free to wash feet. Because of that, he was free to associate and to reach out to tax collectors and prostitutes, the ones the religious leaders wanted to have nothing to do with. He was free to face rejection. He was free to die the death of a criminal on a cross for you and for me. He was free to do all of those things because he knew who he was. There was nothing too beneath Jesus to do. Think of the last time you didn't do something because it was beneath you to do. And yet the Son of God saw nothing that was beneath him. He could dive to the depths. Let me tell you this. The freest servants in the world are those who know who they are. They know who they are. They know whose they are. They are the most sure of their status and their identity. They can wash feet. They can do the dirty work. They don't have to be in the limelight. They don't have to get the credit. They don't have to have their name up in a wall or up in lights because they know whose they are and they know who they are. They know that they come from God. They know that they are returning to God and they know that they are going to experience one day a glory that far outweighs anything that this world has to offer. So go back to Philippians chapter two. Paul says this, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. The freedom that Jesus had to make himself nothing came from the reality of knowing that he was something. Does that make sense? The freedom to make himself nothing, to take on the very nature of a servant came from the fact that he knew he was something. He came from God. He was returning to God. The Father had put all things under his authority. Far too often, we get it backwards. Far too often, we spend so much of our time and we don't humble ourselves because we spend so much of our time and our energy and our resources trying to make something of ourselves that we don't have enough time to make nothing of ourselves. Our egos are too fragile to be made into nothing, to take the very nature of a servant. But it's when you and I 
are in touch with the something that we are in the heavenly realms that we're willing and able to make nothing of ourselves in the earthly realm. Does that make sense? Realizing how high you've been lifted up, realizing what the Father has given you has so much to do with how low you're willing to go. And that's why I think knowing who you are and knowing whose you are has the ability to set us free, literally, to get into the spirit of Christmas, of becoming less so that others can truly have more. So what about you? Who are you gonna scope out this Christmas? Hopefully not with the intention of pulling the trigger, but who are you going to scope out this Christmas? Who in your life are you going to put the target on? Are you going to put the aim on? Are you going to put the focus on? Because you're willing to follow the example of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and to humble yourself and become less than so that others can have more. More of God's grace, more of God's favor, more of God's blessings, more of God's love, more of God's peace, more of God's forgiveness. We sing the song, I asked Jeremy to sing that song Lord, make me a servant. Lord, make me like you. For you are a servant. Lord, make me one too. Lord, make me a servant. Do what you must do. That's a scary line, isn't it? To make me a servant. Lord, make me like you. May those not just be words that we sing, but may they be lives that we live in service to the King who became less so that you and I can have more.